Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'm here to tell you that it sure is good to be back here with you again. After we returned from uh, Burning Man last week, I was all charged up and was planning on doing an entire podcast about it. But uh, now that the dust is beginning to clear, so to speak, uh, the truth is that I'm all burned out with Burning Man right now. But that said, yeah, even though I'd originally planned to podcast a few more of the McKenna-Abraham-Sheldrake trialogues, the playa just won't let go of me yet this year, and so I'm going to play one of this year's playalogs for you. And uh, it's the one that Bruce Damer led. In fact, uh, this was the last of the playalogs that we held at the Burn this year. But I have a good reason for playing it first. And that reason is summed up in the one word I love to hear my friend Queer Ninja say when he opens his podcast. And that word is easy. <laughs> As in easy. But uh, in this case, I'm the one who's taking it easy. While it would uh, probably make sense to play the plylogs in the order that they were held, transferring all of that audio onto my computer and then converting it to MP3 format probably isn't going to uh, take place for a few weeks yet. But uh, Bruce, as is his custom, brought his own voice recorder along and uh, placed it in front of our little sound system. And uh, he then gave me a copy of it in MP3 format. So I'm going to take advantage of Bruce having already done a lot of the work and play his plylog right now. Then uh, for the next few weeks, I'm going to play some more of the McKenna-Abraham-Sheldrake trilogues just to uh, give us all a little break from Burning Man. Or maybe not. I guess we'll just have to wait and see what the muse has to say to me next week. Now, if you go to the program notes for this podcast, which you'll find at psychedelicsalon.org, you'll see a couple of the pictures that were taken during the talk you're about to hear. Bruce actually began this plylog a a little before 5 o'clock on Friday afternoon, and just as he began to speak, we were entombed in the most severe whiteout of the week. Now, if you've been to the playa, you know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't experienced a Burning Man whiteout, well, my advice is to do it vicariously through photos, video, and now through this audio recording that was made while the little storm raged. At one point uh, in our comfy little 30-foot diameter yurt, the dust became so thick that uh, people sitting just uh, 15 feet away or so from Bruce couldn't even see him through the thick cloud of dust that filled our yurt. But then uh, the storm blew a hole in the top of the yurt, and that acted as a chimney and sucked a lot of the trap dust out the top. But uh, in turn, that created a steady flow of fine dust particles that came up from the ground, swirled around a bit, and then uh, went out the top of the yurt, just like a steady stream of smoke. It was really quite spectacular, I have to admit, Uh, but just talking about it right now brings back the sting of the dust in my lungs. And I was wearing a breathing mask, as uh, was almost everybody else in the yurt. Everybody except for Bruce, that is. Even though he had his breathing mask with him, uh, being the true professional he is, Bruce uh, chose not to use it because he wanted to be sure that those brave souls who were there to hear him could uh, hear him clearly. Uh, Well, as anyone can hear while sitting in a canvas structure during a gale force wind, it was wild, to say the least. 
So now I'm going to play the recording that Bruce made with his MP3 recorder sitting on a cushion about two feet away from the only live speaker in the tent. Basically, uh, you're going to hear this plylog pretty much like we all heard it that day. Hopefully, we also got another recording uh, directly from the board, but uh, it's going to be a while before I get my act together enough to know for sure. Uh, anyway, right after I finish playing Bruce's plylog, I'm going to describe what happened as he finished. And uh, believe me, it was so unusual that if it wasn't for the pictures I took, I probably wouldn't believe it happened to myself. And now for the final plylog at the 2007 Burning Man Festival, wind and all. And as you are about to hear, we uh, started out by hunkering down in the yurt while Bruce told about the worst storm ever to hit the playa. And I guess I should mention that I've left this recording essentially unedited, so you can hear a little of the wind in the background and vicariously experience our moments of concern as the yurt appeared to be <laughs> taking off through it all as we sat wearing our breathing masks and goggles. Bruce, of course, very stoically sat there and talked. No mask, no goggles, and at times we couldn't even see him because of the dust, as I mentioned. Yet he pressed on. Oh, and you'll uh, have to try to ignore the background sounds, uh, especially in the last third of the recording. Besides an art car or two going by, the camp next to us started gearing up their sound system at about the same time as we were finishing. But if you really want to get the feel of this event, fill your room or your car or wherever you're listening to this with as much dirt and fine dust as the air will hold. Then crank the heat up to around 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and be sure that you haven't had any sleep for several days. Now maybe my children, who are almost all over 40 years old right now, maybe they're right. Only a certifiably insane person could be drawn to something like that. And maybe so, but uh, it still beats fighting the traffic on the way to and from a dingy little cubicle that sucked the life out of me for more years than I care to think about. Okay, I'll be quiet for a bit now and play this recording of Bruce Damer's Plyalog from the 2007 Burning Man Festival, which he gave while a bunch of us took shelter with him in the yurt at the pod cluster, way back in the boondocks of Black Rock City. I would like to uh, now introduce my good friend Bruce Damer, who... Uh I don't know, how, how many of you have heard Bruce in one of the podcasts or something? Okay, a few of you have, so uh, you know a little bit about Bruce. Uh, Bruce uh, came into my life uh, through Terrence McKenna. Bruce, you might want to just hang on for a minute here so uh, maybe Bruce can uh, not have to breathe all this dust. Even the playa gods know when Bruce comes, they're going to laugh. Did, did anybody see uh, in the paper in July in, in USA Today and, and a whole bunch of other papers that NASA now is uh, taking on a new mission, one that finally makes sense, is to uh, be able to, well, move an asteroid out of the way that's coming our way or bring one into orbit and mine it for uh, precious metals or, or resources? And uh, it's a brand new, a whole new direction for NASA to uh, finally accept this. And, and it's getting dark, isn't it? Maybe I shouldn't be talking about these things. We're in it. Pardon me? 
And, and while this is going on, so that you know this isn't too bad, why don't you tell the story of the 2000 and, uh, was it three or two, the whiteout after the word? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I'll introduce Bruce the rest of the way in a minute, but as long as we're enjoying this, uh, yeah. let's hear what it was really like when it was bad. Yeah, we, um, right after, right after the festival ended on Monday in 2002, uh, it was 2000, we're usually in the staff area in the center camp, so we just sort of hang out with people at the end, and, uh, uh, we were sitting there, it was a beautiful morning, about 11 o'clock in the morning on Tuesday, and we looked down toward Gerlach, and there was a black wall of dust, a thousand feet high, coming toward us. Not one of those little pillars, but a wall. And because I work with NASA on Mars exploration, we were doing a lot of simulations of Mars and mapping its surface and putting vehicles on it, virtual vehicles. I said, that looks like just like artists' conceptions of Mars dust storms, like planet-wide dust storms. So I got Galen into the motorhome, and I turned the motorhome into this thing as it was coming in, and it hit with an 80-mile-an-hour wallop, hit us, you know, front on, and it went for three days, 80 miles an hour. I think it peaked at 100 miles an hour, and it was it was unbelievable. Um, in whiteouts like this, you'll see people riding their bikes around and everything. If you were in this, if you were outside in this, it would blow you right off your bike. Or if you held your your bare skin up, you'd see little pockmarks of blood, little little beads of blood where the grains are going subcutaneous. Just like this. And uh, center camp tent was totaled and hard structures were torn apart and we saw a burn barrel traveling at 30 miles an hour and uh, rangers came by basically they locked down the play you couldn't leave uh, washoe county and pershing county police evacuated their officers and uh, it was called condition alpha and it's the highest state of weather emergency and i asked them what happens if condition alpha happens during the festival right and it's the bullet that we're always dodging out here. And uh, they said, uh, well, the man would be matchsticks. It would be destroyed. It, would be, it wouldn't be arson. It would be Mother Nature coming down, picking it up, shaking it apart, and throwing it down to the blow fence. And uh, it would basically be very severe. There would be uh, dozens or a hundred people in fatalities. There would be several thousand people met medical needs. So I wrote up a whole website all about this experience and submitted it to the organization. I'm still waiting for them to include it in the survival guide, but but uh, I'm going to bug. We're in we're in first camp this year, so I'm going to grab Larry at some opportune point and say, condition alpha strategy. And if you guys are ever if you ever find yourself where the blow is so severe or there's a weather condition where there's a lot of rain and you can't move, that's the other condition alpha you actually become a block parent, which means, say if a, a blow is very intense, people can't even stand up. You, you look around your area that you can see, which might even only be a 20 feet, and if somebody's walking through your camp, you take them in. 
if you, you if you can, you go and do like an astronaut's EVA walking outside to look for people in a certain perimeter that might be lying down prone on the playa and uh, take them in too. We actually rescued a couple that were 100 feet from us and they took an hour to find us. And one man, the man was going into diabetic shock. So we, we took him in and we hydrated him and kept him from getting worse. He was almost blacked out. And uh, without this block parenting strategy, there's no way uh, to save the festival. The festival would be terminated by that kind of an event. So I, I've got a website off of, off of my homepage that actually talks about surviving condition alpha and it talks about the kinds of like industrial strength breathers like she's got. Uh, hip boots, so when you're trying to tear a camp down that's been broken apart by the wind. Sand dunes are up to five feet high on any obstruction. So there are sand dunes covering everything. The blow fence, center camp, the baristas area is all sand, big sand dunes over everything. Um, but it's condition alpha and uh, hopefully this isn't it. I doubt if this is it. No, I don't think it's <laughs> that don't don't worry about the top of the tent because the worst that'll happen is it'll all blow off and we'll just get a little more dust. But uh, I think John went out to see if any of the uh, troopers want to try to get up on the ladder, but I don't uh, advise that myself. Uh, so uh, letting the air through. Which is yeah, good. I think it's in the best place rather than the side. I think it. Uh, so. Now all of us are sharing this little experience together. We need to all exchange email addresses and have a reunion every uh, five years of the dust storm. <laughs> I thought five o'clock by five it would be died down, and it was. But we tracked in our camp, um, in first camp, if you see there's a building with a tower on it with a dish on it, that's the network operations center. In, we're part of that team, and so we look at the weather maps, and there was a storm system flowing just just over here all day, and we were tracking it coming over, and and if you need e email access or voice over internet, internet phone, come to us. You know, look look for that look, that uh, building, and we do the webcast too, and there's a robot cameras, there's several robot cameras that scan the playa and and bring you Burning Man virtually. Yeah, okay. It's just performance art going on with your What's that? It's just performance art. It's this, yeah, this is, uh, this is all prearranged and, uh, it's a beautiful yurt. We're thinking of finding the, uh, designer and maybe getting a yurt made in the future for a future event here. Miracles workers, miracle workers. So, um, Lorenzo, what uh, 
in your experience? Well, what, what do you want if, to do through if, this? Uh, if, you, if you want to start your talk, I, uh, I can do you, it. Okay. I, I think it might be interesting to do a little preamble about dust on the moon and what a good thing uh, we're not on the moon. Well, it's, uh, this, let's go to the dust issue. Did you know that if you look out in the universe, the primary thing that you're seeing the universe is actually made up of is dust? Dust dominates life. Uh, if there's life scattered extant amongst the con cosmos, it may be that's, that's not on planets, it may be around little grains of dust. When you look at the Milky Way, you're seeing dust. So dust is, and dust is the most difficult material for human technology to manage for, for what we build. And over the last two years, we were involved in a program at NASA designed uh, ro uh, rovers to go to the moon and drill for water ice kind of like me on the fly, I'm looking for Antarctica. And uh, I discovered through this whole thing, I, we got to work with people who actually walked on the moon. Uh, Jack Schmidt, I hired him at $400 an hour to look at what we did. And I concluded through all this, well, many of you, how many of you remember the Apollo moon landings? So there's quite a few people in the room. Did you know that when they landed, and yes, I believe that they went to the moon, uh, when they landed, uh, they landed in, on the moon, you, you're, because there's no atmosphere, and the moon just sits out there and it bakes, it bakes and freezes and bakes and freezes and bakes and freezes. So when you look at the moon tonight, it just come off the full moon, the surface temperature is 300, 250 to 350 degrees of the rocks on, that you're seeing right now that's facing the Earth, the, the lit side. As that terminator comes over, it will plummet down 200, 250 degrees below zero to, to, to touch. So everything on the moon is about what's called thermal cycling, up, down, up, down, up, down. So what did the Apollo guys do? They landed when it was a balmy 50 degrees Fahrenheit to 65 on the surface. So they're walking along. They don't have big refrigerator units on there, you know, where they're contacting them. The boots would be melting. You know, they, the suits would be getting all this heat. And they certainly left after about three, four days, two, three days, really, most of them, because to, to not do so would be to be freeze-dried eventually. When the Russians sent a lunar rover to the moon in the 70s that was automated, was driven by joystick, they had to shut it down when the sun went down and try to keep its electronics cool, uh, warm, and then it would come back to life. And they drove it for a year, a couple of them for about a year. So the, actually, the moon is a harsh mistress. It is a tough place to go. And we all grew up seeing buried lunar bases and happy astronauts running around, mining, doing all those things. It ain't going to happen. I concluded after two years, after a lifetime of believing this, and two years of actually working on this, this problem, that we're not going to do it. We don't have the technology. You know, if, you, if we don't have the technology to keep something going on the plow with the lunar dust, or with this dust, the lunar dust is worse. It's like this little ninja knives that are made by being smashed. The moon's being smashed by asteroids for billions of years, and it's made these little sharp grains that get into everything. They cut, they cut fiber down. The suits were cut. Several layers were sawn off by this dust. So you've got the thermal cycling, the dust. You've got a lack of water, probably. Jack Schmidt, who walked on the moon in Apollo 17, doesn't believe there's water ice anywhere. And so the moon is actually kind of a tomb. It's a harsh mistress. So you ask, 
how do people how are people ever going to go out and settle in the solar system or is this a pipe dream or this is impossible well guess what uh, the when you saw the Perseid meteor shower you know a few weeks ago all those streaks in the sky came from objects that came from the birth of the solar system the very beginning of the solar system they, they had and, and when they come in they have all these colors, right? They burn up and have all these colors. Why do they have the colors? Because all kinds of good elements in there. There's organics in there, there's water in there, all kinds of goodies. And they're old, they're four and a half, four point seven billion years old. Those that's a comet tail that you're seeing. So it's coming in in the meteor shower. There's another one after the burn or around the burn time, right? There's a big meteor shower. Um, those are the, the, where we came from, all those objects, and they're, they've tracked about a million of them in the inner solar system. Inner solar system objects that pass across the Earth's orbit. And they are what we are made of. After the Earth-Moon formed, the comets and material coming in gave us our oceans. Because if you've got a, a plain virgin planet that's just a cooling lava ball, it doesn't have oceans on it. They came in later. They came in from comets coming in and occasionally a comet or an asteroid comes in like in Tunguska in the early 1900s that comes in and blows up and spreads its material everywhere and so we're made out of that stuff that is the green biosphere of the solar system is that material that's probably our future we have to learn how to go out and, and get that stuff mine it turn it into fuel water etc etc build our structures out of it and if one of them is coming toward us, like the seven-mile-wide object that destroyed the dinosaurs, we have to learn how to deflect that. We have to learn how to deal with those guys. And this leads on to the next, the next thing, which is you can say, well, gee, um, how rare are we in the universe? How, how rare a thing are we? If you, if you go over to next to uh, Brad, uh, Brad Templeton's camp where you see all the panoramas, there's a dome next to that, and Carter Emmert from the Rose Center, from the Hayden Planetarium in New York City, is doing a show every night where he, from his laptop, goes from the Earth-Moon system and uses a software called Uniview that they run on the dome in New York to pull back from the Earth and pull back and show you all of the, the, the known solar systems that we've discovered in the last eight, nine years. Solar systems that have planets, you know, that stars have planets around them. And then he superimposes a sphere showing where the radio waves have reached from the 1920s, out 70 years or so. So these planets, these, these exosolar planets have been bathed by signals from our civilization you know, that we know of. And then of course he pulls back to the entire galaxy and shows that tiny little piece of the galaxy we see in the night sky, that our constellations are these minute this is my new corner of the galaxy. And uh, then he pulls back and shows you the whole universe all the way to the cosmic background radiation. It's really a, quite a show. And he'll do it every night several times. I, I do that as an augmentation to this talk. But so those, those, those solar systems that we've now seen, wow, this is something. Should I keep going? Can you? This is a blast. Okay. Okay. <laughs> That's your hardcore. <laughs> I'm okay. I'm okay so far. 
Um, uh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Uh, so here's a scary thought. So all of these exosolar planets, these solar systems are out there. They've been bathed by our radio waves. Is there any receivers? Is anyone there to pick up I Love Lucy? Probably not. Why? Because those solar systems have all the wrong properties for probably our kind of life or any kind of life. Why is that? Because instead of having in the inner solar system this nice little serene parade of little planets and little ice balls and things that are happily moving around in circular orbits, they have the nightmare scenario, the inferno scenario of a giant Jupiter close to the star and it's hot and it orbits the star. Some of them orbit their parent star in three days. These giant Jupiters are even bigger than our Jupiter and they're going around and going around and they're like a little heat engine and there's no small planets that would be able to have life with that. So you look at our solar system, we have this M-class star that's very stable. It's, it's, it sits there and it cooks away for almost five billion years with the same temperature, no variation, no problems, no internal little digestive problems in our sun, this really rare little sun. And then we have this beautiful serene garden, if you will, of, of inner solar system planets, all protected by a sentinel called Jupiter. It's a cold gas giant. And it, it's out there saying, I'm happy being out here. And in fact, I'll do you a favor and I'll keep that asteroid belt at bay. I'll pull the asteroids out. I'll protect you. And I protected you from comets. And you just got enough comets that you need for your ocean. You know, remember the comet that impacted Jupiter about 10 years ago? The, the impact spot was the size of the Earth, right, on, on Jupiter. As those fragments came in, the comet broke up as it was coming into Jupiter. And the biggest spot, the pimple, was the size of Earth. So Jupiter's doing us a favor every day. You know, do we appreciate it? No. So there's an asteroid belt of, of either a broken up planet, whatnot, between Jupiter and Mars, and it's held at bay. Those pieces of, are chunks, like Ceres is 30 kilometers across. That's a big chunk. If that hit us, it would sterilize everything on the planet. So Jupiter sort of keeps that away from us. And yet, we had some impacts. We had one in the Permian that killed 80, 90% of life. We had another one in the, in the KT boundary that killed all the dinosaurs. We've had just enough impacts to, to vacuum out uh, life and let it start again. Vacuum it out and let it start again. And I think that that is a process that is essential for the development of complex intelligence. And we've probably had them before that. We don't even know there's this theory that the Earth was an ice ball, it was a frozen over, completely frozen over at one point because of various things. And then gradually the atmosphere got more CO2 and gradually a greenhouse effect came and the, the oceans melted again. So there's been all these mass extinctions over and over and over again. So look at it this way. There's another way to see this. Here's the solar system. We're not just static. We're not just sitting here. We're orbiting the galaxy. We're going around and around and around. And we orbit our, our mother galaxy in about 250 million years. And as we're orbiting, we're crossing through these zones. We're crossing through those spiral arms. And in those spiral arms is dust like this. But the dust is crammed with star nurseries. And they're bright spots. You can actually see them in the Milky Way. You can see little bright patches here and there. And that's star nurseries uh, not far from us. And each star nursery 
the stars are being born, the solar systems are being born, and they're full of radiation. They're unbelievably dangerous places. And yet our solar system has never passed close enough to one of those suckers to sterilize the life on Earth. There's also supernovas that go off, little flashes every once in a while that put out more energy than an entire galaxy does. And those are sterilizers. Never had one of those. So if you look at it, you start to sort of think, wow, Drake's equation. Drake was this, this uh, fellow who wrote this equation saying, here are all these terms, and if you fill in the numbers, it should tell you the number of, of intelligent, sentient civilizations. His equations, I think, are vastly underestimate the difficulty of having in intelligence. You need like five or six more terms. And a friend of mine, Rob Tao, uh, we were talking about this one day recently, and he said, here's the, here's the killer. Look up in the night sky. If we're, if we're emitting I Love Lucy, right? I Love Lucy and Hitler's speech at the 1936 Olympics is out there, 70-some years. If we're emitting all that, where's everybody else's transmitter? Where are the other, you know, what if a civilization's been around for a 1,000 years or 10,000 years and it's been doing media? Where you will see noisy solar systems. Solar systems have all kinds of spectrum, noisy, crazy solar systems full of ads for alien tonic waters and, you know, uh, stuff like that, alien vacations and alien mortgage uh, refinance problems and stuff like that. We'd see all that. And there are none. You scan this guy, and a friend of mine, Seth Shostak at the SETI Institute, he, they have this two million channel scanner that's looking for any kind of pattern, any kind of signal, nothing. No noisy stars. We're it, at least in the area that, in this chunk of the galaxy, we're the only noisy solar system. So you think, wow, if it, it could be, and this sort of goes back to when you go back to religions, a lot of religions assume that we're alone. We're the sole creation, in fact, we're the center of the universe. What if we're coming full circle and we're discovering we may be extremely rare? We may be the only one in our little quadrant, we may be the only one in, the, in our galaxy, or the only one in our local group of galaxies, that life like ours is unbelievably difficult to create. And here we are, we go, our, they, you know, our concerns are, you know, can we get to the office on time? We don't even think about the miracle that each one of us is. There's another way of looking at it. If you, if each in, in your, each cell in your body, the trillions of cells in your body is information that is coded and has been recopied and copied and copied and copied faithfully since you were a little worm in the bottom of the ocean with a little spinal cord. Or before that, when you were a single cell thing, each one of those little critters that go back through primates, mammals, tetrapods, fishes, worms, all the way down, each one of those is your ancestor, directly your ancestor. You carry their information, their, their hopes and dreams you know, for the future, their families, their, their fights, their struggles for survival. Each one of them reproduced, was successful, was a success against all odds, and they're your personal ancestor. And you have a personal chain that goes back that's different from any other human being. Even though we share ancestors, at some point you diverge from my, my paramecium diverges from Lorenzo's paramecium somewhere back there. So I have a unique chain. And those beings, you know, the, mir the miracle piling up upon miracle of each one of them surviving and reproducing and against all odds to make me. That's another profound thing. 
what I'm, what I'm trying to build up is a picture of why you don't need religion. All you need, if you want to be awestruck, all you need is to consider the improbability of you, the improbable miracle that is you, the improbable miracle that is all of this, and you're awestruck. You, you, at that point, the only religious texts you can read are the very abstract ones that kind of touch on this, that the very wise texts. But those, those fellows didn't have the ability to look out at the solar system and telescopes and whatnot. So here's another thing. Then you say, what do you do about this? What, so we're so rare. So what? Let's just continue to be our human selves and blow it. You know, we'll have a nuclear winter. We'll have all our mortgages will, will foreclose. We don't care. We're going to eat ourselves silly. We're going to have conflict over energy. We're going to just destroy everything. Salt water for you need, you know, to heck with it. You know, we're made by we're made by this emergent process that has gifted us the, the rare, rare quantity of intelligence to understand that we're unique. So perhaps the universe is this massive machine that doesn't know where it's going. It just came out of a random quantum fluctuation anyway, and it sort of expanded, and maybe there's more than one universe. And in the very rare instances, maybe if there are multiple universes, there's only a very few that make a, a creature that goes and says, we're rare. We emerge from this jumbled mass, and we're rare. And that's the whole point. Like, thank you, you've been recognized. But what if, when you go to see Carter's show tonight, if it's not blowing like crazy, if you go to see Carter's show, think of it this way. Eric Davis talked about co-creation. Um, Carter's show, at one point, he shows um, the surveys of galaxies and the surveys of galactic clusters shooting out from the Southern Observatory in Australia, and there's this wedge of known galaxy and clusters way out to the cosmic background of quasars, and then there's another one up here. And he can rotate this on his laptop with a joystick. That's the, the genius of what Carter's achieved. It's all real data. And you're actually like here at Burning Man looking at these patterns of things. Well, guess what? Those patterns of things are the rendering of the universe. Now, they're the rendering from our point of view. They're, they're looking billions of years in the past. But in your little primate brain is a renderer running saying, oh, that's a cool pattern of of things and the, it's fairly low res as far as the universe is concerned but it's real and so the if, if you're thinking consciously about that and then you look at the night sky and you say wow that's just one of the galaxies that i saw and then if you pull back it's like you're a space traveler already you're already because through the miracle of what what the, he has done you you can say oh that's a galaxy and he, when he pulled back there was a bunch and then there was something called the orion cluster and it had a bunch of galaxies that were colored red you know, just because you wanted to identify them they're not red but so your little brain just traveled billions of light years virtually and rendered parts of views of the universe now if you believe in co-creation you could think what in the heck does this mean well it means that if the universe was at all attempting to find consciousness for a split second a primate brain on earth had in its 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 little synaptic gaps a picture of the universe the universe saw itself momentarily now what does this what does this mean now think about that if you're rendering it the universe is oh it's a it's awake it's self it's self recognized a little bit a little bit a little bit and what if there's another creature, another, there's only two, what if there are only two sentient races and there's a Hayden Planetarium 
with budget problems somewhere in another galaxy that is doing the same rendering. They're going to be seeing, you know, they're aliens with seven eyes, so they'll have different types of computer displays and everything, but some Carter Emmert of Barbie, who's known on the planet, some other Barbie is out there rendering another view, and there's another Burning Man, as improbable as it may seem, and it's aliens, the Burning Man, and the there's another playa, and the playa is all swamps, right? For them, they're like desert, and swamp is like hazardous. And you're in water for a week. Are you crazy? You know. And uh, so they're in this water, and they're like, whoa, you know, radical self-expression, and and so there's this underwater displays, and and they're they're looking, and they're like, hey, this dude is, you know, their their eyes are on little poles, and they're like, well, this guy is actually able to render the night sky, and. They, they, they've drawn back the veil of dust that surrounds our planet, and we learned how to make water lenses, and we've done all this. And so now they have a rendering of, of some some being is like seeing that, but they're seeing it from a different perspective. But what if somehow their mind now connects with the mind of you that rendered it? Well, the universe is a little bit more. It's a little bit more collective consciousness. Now here's here's the last little piece to this. Um, and there's a book out by Seth Lloyd called Programming the Universe. Since I'm a software guy, I love programming anything, like hacking the universe, programming the universe. And Seth Lloyd's book was a mind blower. I read this the first chapter before coming here. And Seth Lloyd's thesis is that the universe is a computation device. It is, what does it do? It computes the next moment at every moment. And it computes this at the quantum level. And this guy is a serious guy. He's not a flaky guy. He's actually made little tiny uh, quantum mechanical computational systems that work. You put a thing in, it solves a thing, and it comes out. Well, okay, this is really interesting. Understand that atoms and molecules and all this stuff that we're made out of, at the lowest level, if you tore yourself apart, tore all your molecules asunder, whatever, you'd just be a pile of, of quantum mechanical effects, particles and waves. That's all you'd be. And so would that rock, and so would a little piece of space somewhere. It's all the same. It's all one field. And in fact, at the very beginning of the universe, that's all it was. Molecules got together out of all of that, that stuff. But the, the ultimate communication mechanism is the quantum mechanical effects. So we say to ourselves, oh my goodness, this is like a, this is like a communications medium. If you can get if in a little box, somehow in a lab, you can get, in, instead of chemistry, we all understand chemistry because we're made out of chemistry. We drink water and you know, chemical reactions happen and we live on chemistry. But what if you can get little quantum mechanical things to happen down at the below the level of chemistry? Well, let me take this. Something comes of this. What if the ultimate goal of life, of the universe, was to become fully conscious. And what I mean by that is the entire universe becomes, instead of this jumble of matter and quantum whatever, it becomes a single conscious being. Because, hey, that's what we all want to do, right? We see each other on the playa. We come out here because we get this group contact high. Talking about contact highs. We love each other more. We open up. And we, the greatest fear in human existence is that to die alone or to be alone, right? We're social beings. And what if the greatest fear of a civilization that has arisen is to die alone, right? The greatest possible fear. It want, we want contact. We crave contact. And it, it overrides everything else. Even, you know, of course, when there's scarce resources, maybe we don't want contact. But we want contact within our group, at least. 
And of course, what was Star Trek all about? What was what are all these things all about? It's this craving for contact and maybe for eternal life or eternal life through contact. And we find out we're incredibly rare. We're incredibly rare. And we're just come out of nowhere. And there's no gods to thank. And there's no nothing to thank. We're just here by happenstance. So it's like we carry the responsibility to do something about it. And the universe isn't sort of if there is no God that's sort of adding up the points, while they, you know, they're not going to be, they're going to be in heaven and hell because they, they got conscious and then they didn't do a damn thing with it. They went and they, they spent it all at Walmart and they didn't pay any attention and nobody cares. And so the, they're going to the, the hell bin or to be like Douglas Adams where the, the cosmic bulldozers are coming to blow away the earth to build, build the bypass. You know, it, it probably isn't, there is no one running the show. But it's, so you're left with the, with the sole responsibility that you became conscious. So one of my, my theses is, is that computer networks will continue on, universe, thank you very much, through entropy here. The, the universe uh, created us with ten digits, like little fingers. Most tetrapods have usually five and five, some six and whatever. And you could say to yourself, well, we're pretty, you know, we, if we evolved out of bonobos, we'd be lying around having free sex and never have invented buses and cars and radios and stuff. But we evolved out of really kind of uptight primates. So nature chose the uptight primate, and especially uptight the Europeans, and especially the Northern European primate, which is the Native Americans, when, when, when Europeans came ashore, the Italians came ashore, they were like, hey, how you doing? And the French ones came ashore. It's like, yeah, we could deal with these people. Then the Anglo-Saxons came. And the New England uh, First Nations people are like, these people have a problem. Look at the scowls of their faces. We have a problem here. So it wasn't just Puritans, all the Anglo-Saxons. So nature chose this kind of primate. To, and we're driven. We're constantly driven, driven, driven. We're driven to build technology, to make money, to do to consume all resources on the planet to do something and what is it well if if the universe itself or if life itself had a chance to expand out into the universe and populate and fuse the universe we may be one of the only shots at least in our area we're like one of the only chances to do this and we have a very limited window nature has whacked the planet several times and knock out Let's knock out those crustaceans in the Permian. You know, that trilobite, it's ruling the roost and it's arrogant and whatever. Let's knock it out with a big impact on Antarctica. Oh no, you know, big lizards. They're totally self-centered. You know, they're really wonderful, but they never study the night sky. Let's whack them. Whack them out. Okay, mammals, you know, the mammals were there before. They'll become, we'll leave some dinosaurs called birds and they'll be food for these mammals. And let's give these mammals a chance. And there's like only 250 million years left before the sun is too hot. We talk about global warming. To have 250 million to 400 million years before there's no plants on land, period. It's just too hot. Oceans will start to get hot and boil off and whatever. We're, we're past middle age. Earth is past middle age. So if we don't do it, they universally whack us again and give, give, those, uh, uh, give arachnids a chance. You know, and leave and leave mammals around for giant arachnids to feed on or whatever. But but consider that, and, and the bacteria are calling in these airstrikes. Uh, bacteria are everywhere in the universe, but they can never get complex, so they evolve complex things, and then they get bored and wipe them out. Uh, anyway, back on track. So we're here. What are we here to do? We're here to reproduce. 
create our offspring and families. We're driven to do that. We can't stop doing that. The greenest thing you can do, of course, is not have babies. Because every baby you have creates a massive future impact on the, on the planet. Or you raise the baby to grow its own food, it might be better. But each baby is like a massive impact on the planet. But we're still driven to do that. Um, but we're driven to do something else. A, a few odd people, uh, normally people that look kind of like me or crazier, have this idea that technology is the place to reproduce life. And we started a project called Biota. We've had four conferences. One of them was up at the Burgess Shale where we took all these overweight paleontologists who sit behind microscopes and computer screens up to the Burgess Shale where you find Cambrian creatures with six 550 million year old creatures with flaps and weird eyes and you know they look like the aliens I was talking about earlier. And that's our ancestors and and that's when creatures got bodies and shapes. And so the biota group believes, and we've had four conferences with Richard Dawkins and Douglas Adams and all this mixture of weird people, but the theme of biota is what if all of technology is about providing a channel for life to find a way out? Find a way out into the solar system, or having read Seth's book, uh, an aha went off in my head because for 25 years I've been thinking of how do you create self-reproducing life forms that can live outside of the Earth in a heart vacuum on crisp, you know, on ice balls and whatever to produce a green solar system, a solar system rife with life, not just bacterial life in rocks, but complex life, a little simple. I mean, something like a slime mold or something like an insect, but really simple because we're not going out there. We're totally unbuilt to survive in the solar system. So we have to actually seed the seed space with life so that we can then go out there later. And hopefully they'll, they'll open the door and let us in. Uh, or they'll be producing resources we'll harvest. Now, we couldn't have settled continents. We can't go to Antarctica and settle it because there's no, not enough life or biota there to support human uh, settlement. We can't go into the solar system without biota. And if the goal is to say, let humans persist and, and our planet persist, we need we need to create life forms that will undo the mess that we've created, hopefully not make it worse, you know, scrub the atmosphere and things like that. And then it, it so it struck me then, then maybe is that our legacy? Is that if say for instance, we created a whole bunch of self reproducing nano robots that could live in uncountably large numbers on the surface of icy objects floating in space and, and the whole system sources and kind of goes green and then we snuff ourselves out. Well, at least we've left behind this thing that isn't just bacteria, that, is, that communicates by radio, uh, that reproduces and can live natively outside of a gas bubble of a planet. And it's like, okay, you guys go on and do the job we, we, we couldn't do. Go settle the galaxy and do all that. It, it then struck me that, gee, that's a long way. That, that requires lots of funding for a wacky project nobody would fund. And it's very technically difficult. And is it even possible? And then it, when I read Seth's book, was like, wait a minute, if he says that you can program real simple stuff in the code of the universe, in quantum mechanical fields, what if you did your simulation of A-life in the computer and you injected that into a quantum mechanical computer that you built in the lab to get the quanta to wiggle the way that you would want to make self-reproducing little critters out of quantum mechanics? Now. Think that for a, for a moment. There's one thought that came to me, which was, well, if you did that and they're able to reproduce just momentarily, you couldn't stop them. 
You couldn't build any any container that would contain that. And in fact, there are just all kinds of crystal lattices that have very predictable things. You couldn't contain it because it's lower than the level of, of atoms. It would just spread, spread like a wildfire. It would spread like the Genesis effect. It would just sweep everything. It would find consumable things which were quantum mechanical fields and energy levels, and it would sweep out. But it would be more like sort of a pond scum taking over the whole pond, just going and going. The pond is very big. And so then what you have is, is sort of a cheap and dirty way, if this would work, to actually infuse the entire matter of the universe, matter and energy of the universe, with something that is of us, of, of, of what we have learned about us, which is make code, make it self-reproduce, make it change, make it get more complex, give it communication and whatever. But from the Earth, instead of a few footprints on the moon, and a few little complex organisms you know, that we could do in our short time, out from the earth explodes not just I love Lucy, but the explosion of life itself, just bam, it's spreading everywhere. And, and you could tell, it would be like one of those Greg Bear novels, you know, uh, Blood Music I think was the one, where everything turned to gray goo, including us, and we all became happy gray goo. But what you would see, because it's quantum mechanical, say you had a, you had a, piece of pizza that was infused with this kind of quantum mechanical life, it would suddenly start looking different. It would have different properties because instead of atoms and molecules being the organizing principle, life would be the organizing principle and the, everything, the color would change, the smell would change, you know, it would smell like ice cream or something or it would sh start shimmering and changing shape because at the very lowest level, life is now the organizing principle, not the ordinary Newtonian mechanics stuff. Life has, our universe may be built just right to allow life to overcome all that chaos and become the organizing principle. So then what you have is what you guys experience on your trips. When you have a heroic dose trip, how many of you have had, I w and I went to the center of the universe trip? Okay, so think of it this way, and this is, this is from a, a previous, a previous Palenque Norte uh, talk was you go to the center of the universe. What do you see? Let's let's start let's start uh, passing around. Uh, let's get some some input from the microphone because we're recording this. We yeah, have let to. me because I want to. Why I'm doing this is because if you're in your own mind, let's just fin I'll finish up my part of the spiel, and I'd love to hear your experiences and your reflections on this. If in your own mind, in the most wide open brain you have, which is on some kind of either assisted or unassisted center heroic trip and where your brain is completely scrambled or reorganized and you experience uh, uh, going toward the light or doing something like that and and you're enveloped and you feel like you're melted in the whole universe and it's whole, all collapsed into one thing and everything's communicating and it's all about love and that's what Terence's last words were Terence McKenna's last words were it's all about love and keep breathing people keep breathing right remember that so you experience that you know Terence's Terence's brain dissolved let's face it I mean he had he had a mushroom shaped cancer in his brain he thought it was very ironic he said and mushroom shaped and in fact I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of a Terence story because this is a Terence uh, event we have to evoke his spirit since his art since his archive is now totally destroyed Thank you, Quiznos Subshop. Um, the archive in, in Monterey, 
where in the back of the Esalen offices there was burnt up. Terrence's materials are all gone. Uh, fire broke out in a Quizmo sub shop in February, I think. Went through the uh, firewall and burned up all of Terrence's stuff. So if you have Terrence tape and and you know get him to Lorenzo, Terrence only exists in cyberspace and in his books. There are no other notes, nothing. So this is this is appropriate because during Alchemical Arts in Hawaii, which was the last conference that Terrence was at, we all sat in a we laid down like you are in this room and we had we pointed our bodies toward uh, Mr. McKenna and he was lying in the room and this is a man whose brain is now dissolving into a mushroom and but he's quite quite competent and talk he gets very tired at that time and I we all tried to do something individually we tried to co-create some vision for Terence and what came clearly to me was Terence there was this crystalline Fabergé egg vehicle with nice plush seats kind of like you'd have out in the playa well, it's nice and clean no dust and it came down, and Terrence was, got in somehow, and he was carried up, and it was all shiny and everything. And I told this to him later, and he said, ah, the getaway car. <laughs> so in a sense, for me, I committed Terrence to cyberspace. But, but to, to, So he's out there somewhere, and there's some rain. Uh, concluding the thought uh, is that if... If in your brain, in your primate brain, you can you can render a bit of the universe, and if on a trip heroic trip brain you are actually seeing the complete co-creation of the entire conscious universe, maybe it is already happening, or maybe it is in the future, and it is going to happen, and that the universe is pointing to you and saying, "Help make this happen," because I'm expanding. I'm going to evaporate. If you don't do something, you're it. You're the you're the ones. You know, I made sure that there was one M-class star. One, you're it. You go and get going on the project or whatever it is. But it's actually showing you that. Well, say for instance, in in a lot of beliefs in modern physics, those things that are happening in the future already happened, and you can see everything that's happened in the past and that maybe the quantum mechanical level is a communication grid like an internet that links it all together. So when you open your mind and your mind is reorganized, what it sees is this, is this massive project of unifying the grid. And so you're a part of that, and when you see that unification of the universe, you're actually putting a little bit into that. And that in our lifetimes, I don't know if this has anything to do with 2012, I don't, I don't like dates, I predict dates because that's like a project deadline and those, these projects always slip, right, they go over budget. But if maybe when, when you do your next excursion out into this space, think of it that way. And if it's all about love, if Terrence is right and it's all about love, love may be the, the the, the thing that you draw on to make this thing happen. Maybe that is the carrier wave. Maybe that's that's the, the plug-in. Because when you're love, you're, you soften. Your walls break down. You, you connect with other beings, right? And the whole point of the universe is one is to connect the whole thing. It's, there's only one protocol, internet protocol, and it's the love protocol, the LIP, the LUP, the love universe protocol. And so maybe that's the thing that's given to you as the mechanism. So I'm just riffing here as all this coming out. But So that maybe is why you're sitting in this room, because you were plugged in for an instant. You know, and Eric was 
uh, Matt was talking about going out here and come back and go on here and come back. But maybe what you're actually doing in some sense is that this grand purpose of the universe is here, you could call it God or whatever, and you're going closer to it and pulling back, and closer to it and pulling back, and you're starting to exist in the middle a little bit. And if you realize maybe what it is, which is love, connectedness, not dying alone, uh, purpose, whatever, whatever that thing is out there, you're helping that process along. And some some future nerd will will post something on Slashdot in the future and said, I've done it. I'm not telling you people anything. I'm going to push the button tomorrow and you'll see everything change. And uh, suddenly uh, pizza will all smell like ice cream and, uh, and, and you'll all be part of the biggest trip in, in the history of everything. You'll all be part of it. So that's the end of the spiel part, and I hope we can we can pick up. Okay, questions. Let's. Wow, Bruce, that was. Um, I was expecting to hear a mind-blowing Mark Healy talk, but I think you were even more mind-blowing than what Mark was going to come up with. But uh, it's, uh, um, I. I you were you were calling for responses at one point before just before the end to something about the, the grandiose cosmic mystical LSD trip or whatever. I I, I don't want to go there, but um, uh, I just want to mention a really great book that summarizes some uh, an angle of what you're talking about is Biospheres by Dorian Sagan. I just found this paperback. I thought I knew all this shit for years. I just stumbled across this paperback, and he, he basically you know he's talking about the Gaia hypothesis. And you know the, the the notion that the Earth behaves as if or really is a living being, and in a number of different ways it has its own metabolism. But the one thing people haven't been able to demonstrate is well, if it's a living being, all living beings reproduce, right? Well, what is the reproductive mechanism of the planet Earth? He argues that it's experiments at creating self-contained ecosystems, like the Biosphere 2 project in Arizona. Um, the, the small biospheres you can buy in a glass ball that just have like a few species that just kind of reproduce, you know, endlessly with only input of sunlight. And then he, he also says what you said, that technology may be, even when we think that we're being the most destructive, we're, you know, messing the fucking planet up, technology is a form of alienation from nature, all of this stuff that, you know, there's a, an, you know, an understandable response that we've had to the way things have been going. That that's all just part of, of a process of nature's creating these mechanisms for exoskeletons that, to project these spores of, and not just humans, but the whole samples of the whole ecos, ecosystem into space to spread. So anyway, I'm just repeating what you said in different words, really, but it was really great because I just read that book and um, it, I had a lot of these thoughts and pieces, you know, and flashes and revelations and bits of information, but really you know, congealed it. And it was written back in 1990. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I didn't even know about the biota things that you've been doing. This one, that's really cool. Anyway, that's just my, uh, my sort of appendage to your... <laughs> thank, thank you very much. Yeah, there's a whole body of great work out there that's emergent, of course. And, um... Here. Okay. And thank you for sitting through this. It's... It's, uh... Oh, <laughs> $250 right now.
Okay, I gotcha. I would just like to talk about what you were saying about Terrence McKenna and uh, his last minutes of him saying about it's all about love. Um, I remember one of my trips, it was just on Nas. I uh, took Nas and I was just, my brain went into this weird thing where I just, you know, found the answer and it was all about love. And um, when I heard you talk about that on one of the podcasts, I was thinking to myself, you know, maybe it was um, because I was close to death and I got a little, you know, insight or, or something like that. But uh, I think really on the other side, in my opinion, that it is all about love and uh, how it all ties in. And also on another podcast with the ayahuasca podcast member we went to, uh, you know, had ayahuasca for the first time. He was talking about how his insight was, you know, everything's going to be okay. And it is, you know, again, all about love. And, you know, we shouldn't push, you know, our insights on people so much. Um, and just in general, everything. And um, I just, just like to say that. You know, I think that there's a correlation between all of that, and um, I too had that insight, and that's why we. That's all I want to say. And, and everybody here knows. I mean, if you're in a loving state, you know how it changes everything around you. You know, it, it totally changed everything around you. It's what it's what what the belief is about the film. And and to to his credit, I mean, Terrence. If you knew Terrence, I mean, Terrence would say, "I'm not a love bug." You know, he was very cerebral. Very cerebral. And Terrence's diet, you wouldn't want to, I mean, this is a Scot, okay, so it's greasy bacon and eggs in the morning. Um, greasy, greasy bacon and eggs. Um, sorry? The dirty truth comes out. I mean, this is a guy who was about ideas and about formulating ideas, and at the end, when, his, when everything is dissolving, he says, the whole psychedelic movement is about the heart, you know, I'm coming to realize that, that it's, it's all about love. It's nothing else. It, everything else is superfluous. So people who use these insights and like, well, it means that this is, this thigh bone is connected to the hip bone. Well, that's a nice insight, but really it's all about engendering love and openness and connectedness. Um, so even the ultimate head case, you know, which we who we love to listen to found found that. But in order for him to find that, he had to have his half his brain dissolved because he's such a head case because he's so good at words right um, but in the end it, it, it worked and I think in this, in this sort of sense you know people ask well why he, was he taken from us at this time well it, it really comes down to what did the man need and I think in his life if you saw him in the last two years of his life he was getting very very pale and drawn he was very tired that's why we went to Hawaii to do a, an avatar event at his house because he's getting very, very tired of traveling. It was partly because of the cancer coming on, but partly because he was just worn out. He was karmically worn out going and speaking. He said, I get on a jumbo jet and speak to audiences of 33 people, you know, and then I come back and then it, it was, he needed something else. And in a sense, internally by getting the cancer before he, he, he achieved the ultimate, which was, it was all about love. He just, it, and in order for him to achieve that, it had to dissolve all his structures and his resistances. And this is a man who understood trips and how to use them. But when it came down to it, the universe said, Terrence, the only way for you to get this insight is to dissolve everything. So I, I feel that in a sense, he, he left us because there was an inner need that he had. And he, and he got it satisfied. And I'm very grateful for that. And if he's in that Fabergé getaway car, 
you know, off he went, and God bless him, you know, our universe bless him. And, and now his, his voice is mixed into a thousand trance, you know, it's, it's blended everywhere. And Rip Mix and Burn, Terrence McKenna and, and his cohorts, thanks to uh, Lorenzo and the Psychedelic Salon. You know, when you were talking about not dying alone, and I was thinking about Mother Earth wouldn't want to die alone, and it, all of a sudden it, Terrence's uh, Find the Others came to mind. It's like Mother Earth is saying, send those probes out, find the others, so I don't have to die alone in a billion years. Yeah, and then here's the funny thing. I mean, if you have, this changes kind of everything, and if, if, if your brain has a vision of Terrence in a, in a crystalline Fabergé egg, it's rendered that image. That's done by biochemistry in the brain and a little wiggling molecules. They're all driven by quantum mechanics to create that effect. And that's a renderer at the lowest level of the universe. So every thought that you have engages the quantum mechanical level and creates the quantum mechanical level has to be a party to this. It's like, oh, now he wants, uh, let's see, this guy named Terrence McKenna is, is, is passing on and this guy is lying on the floor, and quantum mechanical stuff is starting to happen. You know, biochemical stuff is starting to happen. Neurochemical stuff is starting to happen. His, his, his store of images are starting to come in, but this guy's never seen a, a crystal Fabergé egg, right? He doesn't have any way to put it together. So how did you see the crystal Fabergé egg? Now, of course, I read that, that Terrence always had these things on DMT trips, and he had the elves and everything else, but how did he... You know, how is I, or me, an inexperienced person who had never done DMT, in fact, I can't do DMT, it has no effect on me, ask me why later. Um, but I, it's, it's a crazy thing. Um, but, um, so I can only sort of imagine it. But what I saw when I closed my eyes and when I was in that room was, was generated probably a little bit from the other minds, probably a little bit taken from Terrence's little database and his little brain, because it's all coming down to that quantum mechanical level. Everything's wiggling and everything's communicating. So, of course, I see the Fabergé egg that I'll never see on, on DMT ever because can't. Um, so, whoa, wait a minute, what does that mean? Well, that means that something bigger than my little brain came in to generate the image of this thing moving up, carrying Terrence. Since it could be called dreams or visions or whatever that you've never had. You, you don't know what this looks like, and yet it comes into your mind. So in some sense, everything you do is, is, is engaging everything down to the lowest level, and so is everybody else engaging down to the lowest level. So when you see in, in movies like talking about water patterns changing, or when you feel love, your body changes. Well, maybe you're changing other people's bodies. By changing your own body, you're changing down to the quantum mechanical level, and there's some kind of... So all of this stuff with parapsychology and ESP and weird coincidences and all this stuff may be explainable this way. It may be that the, the quantum computer that is the universe is saying, uh, route these packets over here, and you know, it's kind of a dumb router. It's sort of, it, it's, not, it's not designed, but the stuff is shimmering out there, and we can't measure it because you can't put a packet tester onto the quantum mechanical level and say, show all traffic going between you know, one place and the other because you change the nature of it. Every time you look at that, you change its nature because if you're a participant, not a spectator. There are no spectators in the universe. You're all participants. So if you think about it, you change it. If you try to study it, you change it. It's a slippery kind of a thing. 
So, of course, you can lie on the floor and get imagery that you could never have come up with, that you have no mental model for. And so, therefore, you can tap this unbelievable thing. So, therefore, you can say, huh, you know, there is a, there's a reason for the muse. If I open my mouth and start singing, which I can't, um, but Galen can. Galen, are you here? Galen? She probably was. There she is. Oh, no, that's not Galen. That's Mary. Anyway. Um, she can open her mouth and sing in Bulgarian. So <clears throat> now she hears Bulgarian grandmothers singing in that beautiful ethereal thing, and then she can just reproduce it. And then the Bulgarian grandmothers burst into tears. And how can she possibly do this? You know, it's so you think about all the things that come into your head instead of saying, "I don't know where they came from, and I deny them," or um, "I must be going crazy," or whatever. There may be an open channel. There may be open sockets always going in and out and if you acknowledge that there are and you you're empowered by them um, you know there, there may be an explanation for them and it may be that in the 21st century our next great realization as a civilization is how to tap into that and how to distinguish the spam or the, the noise from stuff that we can use it gives us a lot of information it's too much information floating but ne the next time you have a powerful dream Consider that it may have come from the field. Um, another way to think of it, I mean, all of human history, people have thought, where, did this, where does this come from? But it could have come from this, but it's a two-way thing. So we talk about co-creation. It's another way of describing what people have been talking about at this series. Um, but it may be all explainable within our lifetimes. So, uh, next question. Hey, thanks. Um, my major center of the journey, center of the universe journey, was just to, straight through meditation. And at one point, I was in this space where I thought I was falling asleep, and the, my body was kind of constantly just sort of tripping out on, kind of collapse, and I wasn't sure where I was going. And then all of a sudden, I just entered this space within my brain, and it was started. Was triggered by a thought that somebody had told me that the interior space is as vast as the entire universe so all of a sudden that thought just triggered that experience and okay. I was a, a singular point of view that had no physical matter in the universe and I, I saw that the universe was the universe within me truly was as vast as the entire universe and now that I'm thinking about what you're saying I realized that that triggered a whole cascade of other acknowledgments to me and this one phrase came to me after that a few years later that if it vibrates it's not the void period if it vibrates it is not the void so what is the void what is the consciousness within us what is language and the the talkity mind the thinkity mind what what is it always revolving around what is it always trying to avoid not looking at because it can't look at it, it can't focus on it, it can't grab it, it can't use it, it can't do something with it. But when we enter that space of total emptiness, then I think that is the ultimate tapping into the creative realm. And somewhat in the sense that anytime the universe wants to create something, it first has to create a void. It has to create a space where there is no energy, where there's nothing pulsing, nothing vibrating, and in that absolute nothingness of no space, no energy, no time, 
then that's the only possibility for something genuine and new to be created. And the, the greatest thing that we fear, I think, is that, well, what if I just turn off everything? What if I turn off my mind? What if I turn off my fear generator? What if I turn off my paranoia generator? What if I turn off my consciousness? And But there's still something left. There's still something there, and that is my only identity. The only thing that I can claim that I know that I am is this thing that I cannot find and I cannot name and I cannot manifest. But it seems to me that that is the, the whole of the universe, that we exist in it, a black hole, the infinitely most dense point would eventually lead to a point where there's no vibration. So that there's no difference between that black hole within me or seeing inside an insect and seeing that that emptiness is alive there. And, and you know, if you wake up in the morning, think of this, and this goes back to the power of meditation and clearing the mind. If you wake up in the morning and you feel completely fresh, completely like, I'm a newborn baby. I don't know who I am. Um, and and you, part of you may be panicked, like, i got to get to work or whatever. But what if, what if you wake up as a newborn baby every day? And perhaps I think people who meditate and who really try to clear them out do wake up as newborn babies and then they come alive each day so that each possibility of the day comes in and it manifests itself. They're not on a rigid schedule and a checklist. And perhaps that's that's the way our ancestors might have risen each dawn as new beings every, every dawn. What's interesting is in the beginning of the universe for the models that they have now, there was actually a phase where the universe is expanding ball out of the void and it reached a phase where everything's a gas. And there were massive vibrations. There was a voice period of the universe. The voice period, voice was a roar. In fact, scientists have tried to reproduce if you had a microphone in this early bubble, what would it sound like? What would the, the nature, an enormous sound, everything's vibrating. It's this roar of voice coming into existence. And then it expanded so much that the gases are separated. And then you had, and you can see it in the cosmic back, background mass. You can see all this rippling, and that's actually the vibratory forces that created the distribution of matter. And that's, that's the remnant of that. And, and the, we're sheet balls of galaxies and tendrils and all this sort of stuff, and then the dark matter in between or whatever. It's all because of this massive vibration, like a massive stereo system blowing the playa apart. And, but then what happened was when planets formed, uh, gas again appeared. Now, there's gas in stars, but it's so noisy and so hot, nothing can happen. But cool gas around planets like Earth appear, and you have an embryo effect. Like you're breathing this, this embryo. You're inside the embryo. And then a friend of mine who went to the Digital Burgess Conference up to the Burgess Shale from University of Manitoba, he's a world leader in embryology. He published this book about this thick that I can't read um, that showed that in the early formation if you try to create a child or any being on on earth and you get this you get a, a duplication and a foursome and an eightsome and a sixteensome and you get this thing called the blastula forming but this blastula is a ball of cells and the, always the biggest question this is almost like the origin of life question for embryologists is what what communication mechanism causes the cells over here to start saying I'm going to be a back and the cells over here saying, I'm going to be a gut, so we better start turning in and puckering in. And everything does that, right? And this, this little puckering in. And he claims to have found it, that it's vibra vibratory patterns. 
that there's this shaking vibration, sonic waves going through the blastula. Where do those come from? You know, what triggers and what starts those? So what it goes back to is maybe the entire universe is a big voice, has made the structure, but you were made by a tiny little voice in your own personal big bang, at your own personal beginning. And the question of what started the what started the vibration? And the vibration's complex. In the communication between the back cells and the gut cells, it has to, to send a bio signal, uh, a, me a message to the next cell that reproduces more gut-like from the, from the information coding. And the next cell's more gut-like and then stomach-like and then stomach lining wall-like. And it's amazingly complex, but it happens and may happen through vibration. So the Maybe it is voice, maybe it's what we're doing here, talking through the ether. It, if you sing, if you talk, whatever, you're participating in the, in, in the great gift, which is vibration through a gas or through water, whales, cetaceans. It's their vibrating things. And maybe they're vibrating things at the lower level and the quantum level, too, that we don't, we don't know how to measure. So perhaps it's all about vibration in the void as, you, as your insight came. Like it's the ultimate conduit. The ultimate conduit. Yeah. And it's just been a, every single point anywhere in the universe is simultaneously connected. There's no space or time there. So the, being, being right here, being at the farthest distant most point in the universe, is instantaneous. Right. And that's why if, if we create artificial life or, or life inside the quantum mechanical field, it can you imagine experiencing this? It's the great, the great wet dream of all science fiction, right, is that suddenly everything unites in a, in a thunderclap or instantaneously everything becomes a single, now does it, should it start from Burning Man? Uh, well, well, in Burning Man 2022, well after the 2012, so people don't worry about deadlines, they're 10 years, 10 years late, we'll bring the box out, right, the black box with the big button on it. <laughs> And we'll choose somebody, some random person, to punch the button, and we'll, we'll ignite the entire universe as a single living being. And we'll start right from, right from here. Uh, so anyway, somebody who's now very young will be tasked to push that button. The question. <laughs> um, this, yeah. I just, well, first of all, thank you. This is really a wonderful opportunity. I feel really grateful to be here. And I, um, I love what you're saying about love, and um, it, I just want to make a plug to be kind of ruthlessly committed to being loving in a really vigorous way, because we, we have all these ego attachments, and every day there's all these opportunities to move into fear about you know, not having enough, or not being good enough, or being controlled, and feeling like a victim, or being arrogant, or being selfish, or, you know, all those kind of things are challenges for us every day, and so love is like, you know, this beautiful, soft, gentle concept, but it's, it, it's not valuable unless we're willing to go down to the bone and eliminate those things that prevent us from being loving in, a, in an authentic way. So I just wanted to, I just wanted to put that out there. And, and I think any time you can wake up like a newborn in the morning, think of you're a, you're a kindergarten teacher, right? 
you're, this would be useful, right? Because you, you see those faces of those kids, and they wake up as new kids every day. They're forming egos, and they're forming all that. But when you look at the, the rare times I've helped a friend of mine teach kindergarten, it's amazing. It's not like Arnold Schwarzenegger falling on the bed at the end of the day. It's, it's like you're looking in these faces, and you're realizing that, um, wow, you know, they're open. And in a sense, if you can look in the eyes of another person, especially children or your loved one, or you know, without any kind of a mask on, you'll get rebooted a little bit. You'll get that back. Or you can meditate and become empty. But it's a practice. Every time I see that in your eyes, then it's a full circle again. I see that absolute void. And it's the same thing that's animating me. So you see the void in, in my my eyes. Every single eye I ever looked. Yeah. The yeah. The eyes of lavender plants. The void. Well, one something happened to me when I was. This is another very personal story, but uh, I always, as a kid, I was adopted, and I never knew my birth mother. And they always say, no, now they're understanding about adoption is when when the baby is brought to the mother or comes out of the mother, they make that eye contact incredible deep contact that humans need, that an infant needs. I never had that, um, not that I know of. Uh, and so I was brought into a ward and put into a crib somewhere and bundled up like they did in the early 60s. And so I was sort of put in jail right away. You know, no one to look at and whatever. So in, instead of, uh, I didn't have anything to look at. So there was a moment, um, I remember this moment when Suddenly, these vertical bars, which were the jail, <laughs> which is the crib, suddenly, instead of them being a flat pattern, they went 3D. They went incredible 3D, and I expanded out. My mind turned on to space because I didn't have anything to look at. What was I going to do? I was studying the universe, which was wood slats and stuff like that. And then my, I traveled out, and I could see the whole hospital and everything's like whoa space turned on it was an incredible high for me and there was a moment after that and it's hard to say i was in the hospital for two weeks before my adoptive parents came and picked me up and it was so cold i was in canada so it was cold so cold my little booty fell off and my little foot was blue when they brought me home but um it's another story uh there was this moment and it came to me i was saying why can't i look into other people's eyes why am i afraid all my life is a kid I couldn't make eye contact my mother would say you're he's in his own world they would send me to the school psychologist and I would pound, I would wail away pounding square pegs into round holes and I managed to do it um, things like that they were testing me all the time and they said no he's not stupid he's probably quite bright but he had, they didn't know about Asperger's or nobody understood any of that stuff but I was just a square peg in round but I couldn't make eye contact and I was afraid so people were walking down distance, no matter who it was, I was afraid of them immediately. This is out of principle. Everybody. So I, I asked myself, I, I need to understand this. I need to understand where this came from. And out here in Burning Man about three years ago, after a very intense experience, um, when, when my vision separated, I had such an intense experience that my vision broke up into two. And on the left-hand side of, of the vision, was all these wiggling color pixels, and on the right-hand side was something else, a soft form. And I looked in Galen's face, and I could see her face in beautiful 3D with no color. And when she smiled, I felt happiness. I could, but when I looked with the left camera, she was all pixels. 
and I didn't understand it was a face at all, but I could see the absolute tiny glistening drops on the surface of her eyes, and I could study that for an indefinite period. And for, for a moment I said, that's what an autistic person's like. They don't have the model, on the, they only have the pixel camera. That's why they sit and they stimulate on a little point on the wall for hours in detail. They have raw pixels. They, don't, they never understood what a face was. This is profoundly, uh, Galen works with profoundly autistic kids. Um, and so I said, I have a camera. I got this camera. I broke my vision system. I separated it out in the two parts. I can use it to answer questions. So I turned the camera around and I pointed it back at me, at my brain or my past or whatever. While I got this camera, you know, I got to focus and I got to get some shots. And the first thing I said, okay, what happened? Why am I afraid to look into faces? And the first thing that came back was this turning on of 3D. It's like your first memory was this powerful memory of the world becoming 3D instantly. And then the second memory was this terrifying vision. This terrifying thing was this round face and this fat body, uh, sort of a white body, and these two black eyes. These two black eyes looking at me. And it was the most terrifying thing. And then I realized that this is the black-eyed baby. This is my first contact with another human being looking in their eyes. And the eyes were totally empty. They were absolutely empty, staring at me. And I was just crumbling up. This is the most unbelievably horrifying thing, because I'd never seen eyes before. And it could have happened a couple of weeks into the hospital. Maybe I was in the crib and they plopped this baby down, you know, socialized them, you know, put this other kid in there, black-eyed baby. It's like, oh, they're attacking me, or it's attacking me. It, it has malice for me because it's so empty. And then the answer came. The answer was, it's just absorbing you. It's studying you. It doesn't have malice or, or there's no meanness. It's a baby. Because now I understand about babies. When you have a newborn, man, they look right through you. Why? Because they're void and they are sucking everything in. They're pulling everything you have to give into them. And that baby was pulling everything I had built in the tiny little life that I had in. I'm like, who are you? And but there was no mass, there's no Ill, Ill, Ill intent. I said, oh, that's what, that's where it started. That's the gift, the black-eyed baby. So I try to remember eye contact and not all, I got it wrong the first time. Why do I need to get it wrong every time after that? So that was, that was an important gift. And it, it's, uh, if you ever get it's the blurry vision thing, if you get whacked on the head or whatever, so you're actually separate. I asked the neurologist after and they said, yeah, you're seeing, that's the two forms of, of how your vision is put together. You have the model forming that comes from one part of the brain and you have the, the raw pixels and it has to integrate right. And, and if, if it separates, it's actually a tool. But I wouldn't try it at home. I wouldn't use it as a... Thank you, Bruce. Don't try this at home. <laughs> Good advice. Thank you, Bruce. And you know, I've, I've heard Bruce talk a lot of times, we've had a lot of long conversations, but this is the one I'm going to remember the most. <laughs> I think we should all remember this one. It was really great. It reminds me of 
the first, very first dialogue, that, or uh, Planky Norte lecture that John Hanna gave, and everybody but John had masks on, and that we had the open thing at the time, and they had a whiteout come in. So it's very interesting. Five years ago, our first dialogue started like, or Planky Norte talk started, and here five years later, we conclude with the same thing. So uh, I don't know if that's a message or not, but. Uh, Anyhow, thank you very much for Bruce, and I'd like to introduce Bruce's sister, June. We, June came in from Canada, first-timer, and thank you very much for coming down. So, June is an artist, by the way, and uh, so she fits in at Black. She was a burner and just didn't know it, so <laughs> she fit in pretty naturally. And I, I only met June in 92. I, I, I was reunited with my bio family, where I had three full... So I have this, it is this interesting nature versus nurture thing. I looked at this wonderful woman and 10 or 12 years ago and it's like that's a female me or i'm i'm a female her and she's like a male me and it was such an amazing and it's still amazing to this day that i have an other you know and we have the same bloody crazy tastes so anyway canada's in trouble too huh? <laughs> thank you thank you for being here jim really appreciate it if you want to come up here and uh did you want to come up here too? Get the drums up here and didgeridoo, and I'm going to back out of the way. And uh, Matt is going to do a, uh, a tobacco ceremony as he did to open it. Uh, we'll do to close it. And there you have it the final pileog of the 2007 Burning Man Festival. Did you hear the raindrops a little past the midway point? They came right when Bruce told the story of his vision of Terence McKenna's getaway car. As the uh, first drops hit the canvas yurt, Bruce uh, just casually said, and there's some rain. Well, those few drops may not sound like a big deal to uh, all of you who have been inundated with rain this year, but it's an exceedingly rare event on the playa at Burning Man. I've never seen it there before, and uh, I only know of one year where they actually had a big rain during a festival. Now the amount of rain that fell on the playa this year probably wasn't even enough to measure. But uh, of course that's not going to keep me from making a big deal out of it because uh, as you already know I tend to make a big deal out of all kinds of little things like that. You know it just makes life more interesting don't you think? So think about this for just a minute. Basically we have almost perfect weather all week right up until the moment Bruce begins his plialogue. Then we go through the most intense windstorm and whiteout of the week, followed by a brief rain shower, and then, just as Matteo began the closing ceremony and the drummers and didgeridoo player began, we all stepped outside the yurt and what did we see but a rainbow. That's right, a rainbow stretched from one side of Black Rock City to the other. And it was no ordinary rainbow, not that any desert rainbow could be called ordinary, but this rainbow the one that came with the little shower that accompanied Bruce's story about Terence McKenna's getaway car, this rainbow was a double rainbow. I could go on, and in fact I've uh, been chewing on this in my mind for over a week now. Uh, maybe all of these weather-related events surrounding Bruce's plialogue and invocation of the spirit of Terence McKenna were nothing more than a very cool set of coincidences. And maybe they were something else entirely but I'll leave that up to you to decide. In any event, uh, it was a moment I'm sure we'll all treasure for the rest of our days. 
So to dear Spalding Gray, wherever you are these days, you can rest knowing that we actually did experience our perfect moment at Burning Man this year. I wish I had the energy to uh, tell a few more stories about this year's burn, but this program is already overly long. So I'll uh, wrap this up with the promise that I'll get back to you again as soon as I can. Right now I'm planning on a few non-Burning Man talks before returning to the Plyologs. Not because they aren't uh, extremely interesting, but because I feel like putting a little distance between myself and the Playa for a while. You know, I'm all burned out, as they say. But before I go, I, I want to give a special thank you to some really special people. As you probably have experienced for yourself, coming home from a big trip isn't usually something we all look forward to. You know how it is. You're tired. There's still a lot of unpacking to do. All that work you left undone as you escaped for your holiday has now grown in urgency. And basically, you just want to throw your hands up in the air and walk back out the door. Well, that's where I was a week ago when I got back from the playa. So I decided that before I started any of my unwelcome chores that awaited me, I'd take a few minutes and just read the subject lines and the email that had piled up. And the first thing that came in was a bunch of notices from PayPal saying that a truly surprising number of our fellow saloners had made donations to help defray the expenses involved in growing this podcast. You guys have no idea how wonderful it felt to return home all hot, dusty, and tired, but to find that you were thinking about the salon even when there was nothing new going on. And so I want to express my deep appreciation to Joseph B., Stephen S., Colin C., Jeremy C., Zachariah B., Terry L., Mark B., and Janice Gate Creative. And actually, uh, Terry, Mark, and Janice Gate Creative uh, are uh, frequent donors to the Psychedelic Salon, and uh, all of you guys have uh, really helped a lot. I, I really just can't thank you enough. And uh, thanks to these donors and our previous donors, I, I now have enough confidence to begin planning some new excursions to capture a few stories that are still floating around. For example, uh, while I was talking to the Shulgans at Burning Man a few weeks ago, Anne invited me to come up to their place for a visit and hopefully to uh, do a few recording sessions. But on my way home, as I was doing a reality check on my finances, it became obvious that my choice was going to be uh, to go for a visit to my grandchildren on the other coast or rent a car and drive up and visit the Shulgans. Well, as much as I love the Shulgans, I'm sure that, like me, they'd choose their grandchildren first, too. So I figured I'd have to tell uh, Anna and Sasha that I couldn't make it. But then after returning home, I discovered that uh, even in the absence of a new podcast, uh, these wonderful fellow saloners out there uh, wanted to help out in the collection and podcasting of these talks. So uh, it's now obvious, uh, even to me, that there's a, enough interest in capturing these stories that I should get better focused and make some plans to do more original interviews during the next 12 months. Uh, and uh, to help with that, uh, my friend John M. from Seattle has given the salon an 8-track digital recorder, complete with traveling case. It's, uh, it's really a professional piece of equipment that uh, over time will add immeasurably to what we can do here in the way of recording interviews. Now, to be honest, it's such a big gift that I'm actually having trouble accepting it. So I've decided that right now I'm holding it in trust for all of us here in the salon, and I'll do my best to put it into good use. So, John, uh, thank you again. I really do appreciate it. I'd like to go on and tell more stories about all of the wonderful saloners who came up to us at the burn this year. 
It was really amazing to have so many of you go so far out of your way to locate the pod cluster where we were holding the plyologs. logs. And for some of our regulars, uh, like a dime short, well, <laughs> I'm sorry you went to the wrong place to look for us, but my guess is that you found something equally interesting. Now, while in the next few podcasts I'm going to play some non-Burning Man talks just to give us all a little break from it, I do plan on uh, stopping by Lefty's Lounge on thedopefiend.co.uk sometime in the next week or so and tell some more of my Burning Man stories there, uh, in addition to telling them here in the psychedelic salon as the weeks and months go on. And while I'm thinking about the Shulgans, I'd like to ask you, if if you will, to uh, check around anywhere you can and see if you can find out if there are any stem cell research studies that are taking place on dry macular degeneration uh, and that are looking for participants, of course. As you probably already know, uh, Sasha is suffering from macular degeneration, uh, the dry kind. And apparently the only advice they've uh, received from physicians here in the States is that about all he can do is get used to going blind. Now please uh, keep in mind that Sasha's form of the disease is dry macular degeneration. There are a lot of treatments for the wet variety, but as far as they've been able to find out, the only possible hope right now uh, might be a stem cell research project that's working on the problem. So should you learn of a study or other protocol that might be a benefit to Sasha, well, please send the information to me via email. My address is lorenzo at matrixmasters.com, and I'll be sure to call the Shulgans and pass your information along. Uh, Let's just hope that somebody can help us find a cure for Sasha in the very near future. But in case you're wondering, uh, Sasha's slow loss of his sight hasn't done a thing to dampen his spirits. In fact, uh, for me, the high point of this year's Burning Man Festival was watching Sasha's interaction with uh, little two-year-old Audrey, Anne's newest grandchild. Watching Audrey and Sasha play together, and that's what they were doing, they were playing together. And that's just something I'm never going to forget. Uh, You just simply can't imagine a bigger smile than the one that graces Sasha's face every time little Audrey says, Sasha! Sasha! And then he gets up and walks over to see what she wants. Uh, (laughs) All of the heat and pain and expense and everything else that's involved in going to Burning Man was uh, more than worth it just to see that beatific smile on Sasha's face. Not to mention Anne's pure joy at being around her granddaughter. You know, it was a magical moment for me to be there. Uh, Magical for sure. So let's hope that a cure can be found soon so that Sasha can continue seeing all of these wonderful little children who already seem to be kind of running things for us around here. Well, time to get out of here, I think. But before I go, I want to mention, as always, that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 license. If you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which may be found at www.psychedelicsalon.org. And if you have any questions, comments, complaints, or suggestions about these podcasts, well, just send them to lorenzo at matrixmasters.com. Chateau Hayuk, thanks again for the use of your music here in the salon. And to Bruce Damer, well, thank you just doesn't seem like enough to say for all that you've done for us here in the Psychedelic Salon. But I guess that's just going to have to suffice for now. So thank you, Bruce, Galen, Mary C., Mateo, 
and to all of the other brave souls who hunkered down in the yurt to hear this interesting plyologue. And for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Thank you.